everybody. This is Mark Scott, and our eighth episode of the Closer Than You Think podcast on Substack continues our 10-part series on the book, You Don't Have to Do That. This episode brings us to a critical turning point. After deconstructing so many aspects of the institutional Christian church in America, as we have done throughout the book so far in this podcast up to now, where do we go from here? It is easy to throw our hands up and walk away, but there is a way forward to spiritual health and wholeness. It is actually not only a way, but it is the way, and his name is Jesus. That's right, if we can get past all the distractions of religion, then we can find a loving, caring God. Jesus is the perfect representation of this God, the God who has not only been waiting for us all along, but pursuing and engaging us. Chapter 7 of the book is entitled, Who is Jesus to You? And it raises the most important question we will ever answer. It is honestly the longest and hardest chapter of the book to work through, and that's partially because it requires action on the part of the reader. It takes work to go through chapter 7, like, like it doesn't in the other chapters. <clears throat> so let's get started and jump in. Page 84 is where chapter 7 starts, so let me read an excerpt from the chapter and how we get going here. It's called The Most Important Question. The question, who is Jesus to you, is one for all ages. It has always been the question. It always will be. If the next generation can, simply, can simplify matters of faith, they will be able to give a clearer, truer, and purer answer to this question. In chapter 2 I argued that Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, I argued that Jesus uses used this question to launch his church. As parents, pastors and oh my goodness, I'm having trouble reading here. Let me let me start that sentence again. As parents, pastors and caretakers of the next generation, it is imperative that we spend time answering this question first. This book has addressed many things that aren't true about Jesus. We have spent most of our time deconstructing the inadequate teachings of Christendom. With the path now clear of that religious debris, we can focus our attention on this most important question and what is true about Jesus. Thus, we begin the work of reconstructing. We have reached a turning point. This is the most important chapter of this entire book. Up to now, you have been able to read this book and take it in, but this chapter will require you to do some work. It is important to me that you don't take my answer to who is Jesus, but that you actively answer it for yourself. So roll up your sleeves. Imagine you are standing at a whiteboard, and all the teachings we have reviewed in this book about Jesus and Christianity are all listed on the board. Now, in your mind, take an eraser and wipe the board clean. We have stepped outside of religion. Figuratively speaking, we have left Egypt like Moses and the Hebrews of an ancient world, and we are headed to a new promised land. It is time to start over. Be prepared. This is wilderness work. This is wandering time. It is marked by grieving the known world you are leaving behind. 
It can be painful and lonely, and it will redefine your faith. Remember, it does you no good to wipe away your whiteboard of teachings you have received from others only to replace them with what you have received from me. This is your journey. I'm just here to give you a push, but God is with you the whole way. So first of all, I encourage you to do the whiteboard exercise, whether it's on a literal whiteboard or you just take a piece of paper, a piece of blank white paper, and you write down some of the things that you have been taught that we have addressed in this book already, the things that you have taught, been taught about church and the Bible and discipleship and salvation and Christianity and tithing and all of those aspects and all of those practices. Write them all down, good, bad, and ugly. And then erase the whiteboard or crumple up and throw away the paper and get out a blank new sheet of paper to start over. So I encourage you to do that on your own. And if you have the book, in chapter 7, there are several passages of Scripture that I analyze in the book, and I encourage you to do that work on your own as well. Also, I have mentioned Grace in Motion. It's a website. Man, I am am struggling today. Sorry about that. I hate coughing into the microphone. Um, Grace in Motion is a website, and it... There's a link in the show notes directly to a page on that website that takes you to this idea of who is Jesus to you and looks at the first chapter of many books in the New Testament. Because as I explain in the book, the people, the writers of the New Testament were obsessed with Jesus. You can take just about any letter and find all kinds of things about Jesus saturating the first few paragraphs of any book in the New Testament. The first chapter of just about any New Testament book illustrates the point because it is saturated with truths and facts and parts of the identity of Christ. And if you just took that and that alone, you would have enough of a theology to run with for the rest of your life. So I encourage you to do that exercise. Now, I do that exercise in the book and go through parts of the discovery of that from about five or six different New Testament books. And towards the end, I do start a summary of some of the findings from that. And I'm going to share that with you now. A Jesus-centered or Christocentric, Christocentric approach to receiving the truth about what God is like is healthy. In other words, you can't go wrong if you simply focus on Jesus. Everything Jesus did was literally what God would do because that is why he came, to be the image of the invisible God. Anything essential that God wants us to know can be seen in Jesus. Jesus is how God speaks to the world now. So some things that we learn. Jesus has life in him. Every spiritual blessing is found in him. It is through Jesus that we are adopted and become children of God. 
Grace is given to us freely in Jesus. Redemption is ours through Jesus. Forgiveness is ours through Jesus. The will of God and his purpose are made known in Jesus. We were chosen in Jesus. God's fullness is within Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body or the church. Now, I am resisting every urge to expound upon any of uh, these things that I'm listing, any of these attributes, and simply that the words speak for themselves. This is straight from the Bible, all of the things I just said. For all those people who want to claim to be Bible-based, why in the world are we preaching anything other than these truths? We could spend the rest of our lives only studying and meditating and applying the things that I've just listed, for example, and be so much better for it. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. There is a quote in the book from Carl Medeiros, and I want to share it with you. It says this, The most important thing we can do as followers of Jesus is to do just that. Follow him. Jesus himself is the good news. The message that we carry is Jesus. Not church, not capitalism, not democracy, not doctrine, not the religion of Christianity, not Calvin, not Luther, not Democrat, not Republican. Now, there are topics and sections in this chapter that I'm not going to expound upon too much. I'll I'll touch on a few of them. But what I want to encourage you to do and invite people to do, especially if you have teenage children, is turn these topics, that's what I'm going to do now, turn these sections of this chapter into questions and raise them as questions for discussion, whether it's with you and your son or daughter, whether it's with you and a spouse, you and a close friend, find someone to have dialogue about with these questions as we go through them. If possible, to find someone of a, of a different uh, background or perspective or with a difference of opinion, even better. Bonus points for that. <clears throat> First question. Is there one right religion? Is there one right or true or correct religion? So that's the question that I'm going to pose. This is not the way I do it in the book, but that's what I think would be good for you to discuss with someone. If God created all people, then it only follows that people would organize themselves around common principles that reflect the Creator. As I have argued from the first sentence of this book, religion distorts the pure image of God and distracts us with all kinds of man-made add-ons. But nonetheless, there will naturally be fragments of Jesus present in almost any worldview. So that's my opinion. That's the argument I make in the book. Jesus is the way, the most natural path to God. It doesn't matter what we label our belief systems. No religious movement, including Christianity, has the way to God because no single belief system will ever contain all of Christ. So there's an excerpt from part of the book that relates to that question, is there one right religion? Next question to consider. How intelligent is Jesus? How smart is Jesus? 
So um, <clears throat> that's a question to consider. It deals pages 99 through 101 in the book. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. Next question from pages 102 to 103. I'm going to turn that part into a question as well. And that is this. Does God have one plan for your life? Or does God have a plan for your life? That is a common teaching that has been around for years. Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Do you think that is true? Next question. Is God more concerned with the acts you are doing, the actions you are doing, or the person you are being? Is God more concerned with the actions, the deeds, what are the things that you are doing, or the person you are being? The next question. These are all different aspects that I unpack in this chapter. Here's one for you. Do you think God is fair? Do you think Jesus is fair? So I make the argument in the book that I don't think he's fair, but that's a discussion point that you could have as well. How about this one? Are there some people who Jesus is against? Are there some people who Jesus is against? And then uh, finally, this one. What do you think separates the followers of Jesus from anyone else? What are the characteristics that should set apart the followers of Christ from anyone else? Those are discussion questions that I hope you can find somebody to talk with. If you are able to talk with them and you want to comment on any of the results of that discussion, then so uh, then do so in the comments. That would be great. All right, at this time, I want to mention a podcast that I heard recently, and I will link it in the show notes. It is definitely one to check out. I tweeted about it actually the other day. It is called The Holy Post Podcast. And the episode in particular that I'm talking about is one of their episodes that they call French Friday because they talk to David French uh, on these episodes. And this one in particular was very fascinating and it's a timely issue that is at the heart of the matter of something I get into in chapter 7 of the book. Basically what they argue and find from the survey that they are looking at and the data that is very recent in the polling of professing, church-going, evangelical Christians, okay? And they have like a four-point test for that. Way back in like episode one or two, I talked about what is evangelicalism and what is what are evangelicals, and that's a very loose term, and it's, it's kind of dependent upon how people self-describe. But anyway, with those people, what they found the results to be is that... Uh, the study revealed that professing evangelicals really cannot affirm basic aspects of the identity of Christ. Like there are orthodox Christian teachings that they did not uh, adhere to regarding Jesus, such as Jesus is divine, Jesus is God, uh, things like that. But they were wholeheartedly united, overwhelmingly, well into the 90 percentile, um, about topics related to sexual ethics. And one of the observations and contentions that was made when talking to a pastor is that many churches would rather have a pastor who preaches a false gospel. Think about that. 
than one who has sexual sin or brokenness. If they're dealing with something sexually, um, they need to be kicked out. But if they are going to just preach outright um, heresy and not understand things about Jesus, that's okay. We'll work with that person. We'll coach that person. That's how backwards things have gotten. I deal with this issue in a different way, but it relates so well to what I deal with in chapter 7 of the book. Okay, so to wrap up chapter 7, like I said, there is some work for you to do. And there are these questions on page 115 through 116. And I want to share them with you and encourage you again to find someone to discuss these with or reflect on, or at least reflect on your own. Question one, who was Jesus to you as a child? So what was your understanding of Jesus in your first decade of life? How did you feel about him? What did you believe about him? What were you being taught about Jesus when you were a child? Question two for you to reflect on. Who was Jesus to you as a teenager? So during your adolescence, what was your understanding of Jesus? What feelings and thoughts did you have toward him during that transformative decade of your life, through your teen years? Question three, who was Jesus to you as a young adult? What kinds of beliefs, thoughts, and feelings characterized this phase of your life as you likely set out on new education, career, and family endeavors? So you're in your 20s, maybe early 30s. Who was Jesus to you during that phase of life? Question four, what were the similarities and differences of how you viewed God for each phase of life? How has your faith and understanding of God or Jesus changed over time? Throughout your life, what factors have affected the way you have answered this question of who is Jesus to you? We all get our impressions of Jesus from somewhere. It is time to explicitly name those influences. And question five, the final one, depending on how old you are, who is Jesus to you now? So this is it. This is where you fill your whiteboard. This is where you fill that paper with your new ideas and beliefs. Don't worry about who he might be to you tomorrow or who he was to you yesterday, today, in this moment. Who is Jesus to you? Okay, so that is the work of chapter 7, and then in the end of chapter 7, I write, Now, what does our answer to this question mean for those who come after us? How does it affect how we raise our children? How we have answered this question not only influences our own faith, but also directly impacts how Jesus is known by the next generation. That is the topic we take up in the next chapter. So I actually want to go back a couple of pages and read an excerpt from this chapter as the conclusion to chapter 7 and to close us out with this episode. We have come full circle to see how it all ties together. How we answer the question, who is Jesus, shades everything else. Everything. And when we answer that question to imply in any way that he is not enough, then we, made in his image, can't help but believe we are not enough. 
All of the things on Paul's list of the flesh, contrary to the Spirit, are aimed at trying to make ourselves enough on our terms. They are about using someone else or labeling myself better in comparison to someone else. They are all acts of idolatry because they all start with a false premise. God's love is not enough. With perfect love, all of these things become unnecessary. This is why Paul says to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, is the Spirit of Christ. So Paul is about to give his answer to our main question. Who is Jesus to you? It is shown in the fruit he produces in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are the fruits of the Spirit. They are the outpouring of Jesus. Jesus is love. Jesus is joy. Jesus is peace. Jesus is patience. Jesus is kindness. Jesus is goodness. Jesus is faithfulness. Jesus is gentleness. Jesus is self-control. And no one anywhere has anything against this Jesus unless they are truly crazy or evil. Everyone craves this Jesus. You will not enter a town that has a city ordinance against citizens being too gentle. You will not find international law prohibiting peaceful interactions between countries. You won't enter a school that has a slogan, don't be good. There is no HR manual for any business that outlines how joy and faithfulness are going to get you in trouble. Against such things, there is no law, is what it says in the Bible. Sure, Paul was likely talking about religious law and making the point that there is nothing even in the Old Testament construct that outlawed such things, but common sense tells us it goes beyond that. Human reason and natural law do not conspire against Jesus. Everything cries out for an embrace from this kind of God. Well, as always, I hope you can support the work, subscribe on Substack, share the work as well. I hope you are able to get the book and post a review of it as well. But more than anything else, use whatever knowledge, inspiration, or resources you might find in any of this content to help others around you realize God is for them. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.